0: Well, will you pray with me this morning? Lord, you are indeed the one who life and love comes from. Without you, Lord, we are dead in our sins and trapped in ourselves. But you, God, you are the only one who offers true freedom. You offer it in an abundance of life. And we recognize that we get to live fully only when we come to you, Lord. We ask this morning that as we sit at your feet in worship, that we would experience that fullness of life. That as we, your people, come together in this time, that we would recognize the abundance that you offer. The goodness and gentleness that can only come from you, Lord. Jesus, in this time, I ask that you would turn our, heart, our hearts towards you, that you would refresh our spirits with your truth this morning, God. Father, as we look ahead to next week and the fact that we get to come together and worship inside, we give thanks that it means that both our online and our in-person services will get to worship together and that the new ability it gives us to gather as your people, worshiping as one. And Lord, we recognize that as we are maybe seeing more signs of hope, the effects of the pandemic are still very real, and that there's still much of the world who is deeply affected by it. This morning, we think especially of India and the devastation that that country has experienced because of COVID. Lord, we lift them up to you. We ask that your mighty hand would intercede there, that you would restore health to that nation. God, today we also get to celebrate mothers, our moms. We thank you for the gift that they are in our lives. We're thankful for them. We honor them today, Lord. And we recognize that for some, today is so joyous as they get to be with their mom and celebrate them. And for for some, today is painful. We recognize that today can be a reminder of loss, of broken relationships or disappointment. And so, Lord, we ask for your peaceful presence in all of these situations this morning and in every relationship, and that your comforting and healing hand would be at work today, God. Lord, we ask that in our worship this morning, as we hear your word, that you would refresh us that you would build us back up to go and live as your faithful presence in this world. We ask that you would be with Brian as he shares with us this morning and that you would soften our hearts to hear from you. We love you, Lord, in your good and holy name. Amen. And before Brian comes up today, he has chosen a scripture reading from Psalm 18 to prepare our hearts to receive the word. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in them. Well, indeed he is. And I now invite Brian up to share with us this morning.
1: Thank you, Becca, and happy Mother's Day to everyone. Let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you created us, put our DNA together before we were born in the womb, and brought us forth and worked history guided by the Spirit to come to a knowledge of you. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, you exalted him to your right hand. And poured forth your spirit to inspire us, to gift us, to know you, to love you, and to love the world, and to give ourselves for the world. We pray now that you'd enlighten the eyes of our heart to the beauty of your grace, the glory of your person, and your utter faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of my message this morning, as we continue the story of the life of Joseph, is exalted at the proper time. The Apostle Peter writes, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Well, through many years of discipling men and women, I have seen some very gifted folks blossom using their spiritual gifts. The following a season of success, many were set aside. Their gifts silenced, their influence curbed. In a small number of cases, it was due to sin, but in most instances, it resulted from circumstances outside their control. For some, it evolved health issues, or having children, an unwanted divorce, injustice, or even the economy. And when such times continue endlessly, it's easy to question whether we'll ever know the joy of using our gifts again, or whether we were ever gifted at all. Well, no one felt the force of these questions more acutely than Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. Except for one occasion, his gift was locked up and forgotten for 12 years. But though Joseph was forgotten on a human level, God never forgets. And in our text today, he exalts his servant beyond his dreams. So our text today speaks not only of God's supreme faithfulness to his promises, but it also gives insight into the mystery of what God was doing in Joseph, while he was patiently waiting for the proper time. In hindsight, we are privileged to see what God was doing, which gives us an anchor of hope even in the darkest of times. I find it's much easier to endure the darkness when we can see the purposeful hand behind the crucible. So we begin today in chapter 41, verses 1 Pharaoh's dreams. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, And behold, it was a dream. Well, two full years have passed since Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer. Now God invades Pharaoh's world with two dreams in the night, and it shakes him to the core. You can hear this every time the word behold rings out five times. Look, look, look. And just pulls us right into the scene. As Brueggemann writes, the dream takes away the initiative from Pharaoh. The king no longer is the subject, but the object. He receives messages. He doesn't generate them or authorize them. Now kings are normally protected and screened from unwelcome messages. They hear mostly good news, but the dream penetrates the royal isolation. Well, the dreams strike right at the heart of Egyptian civilization. Egypt's fertility was centered in the Nile Basin, and all the elements of the dream are symbols of food. And they speak to Egypt's pride and her ability to feed the world, especially in times of famine. Gordon Wenham notes that cows were not simply the typical farm animal of ancient Egypt. They symbolized Egypt the primordial ocean, and one of the gods, Apis, among other things. In contrast to the butler and the baker's dreams, which had vastly different interpretations, these two dreams are one and the same. In the first dream, Pharaoh, standing by the banks of the Nile, sees seven well-fed cows coming out of the river and grazing among the reed beds. Then seven more cows arise out of the water and stand beside the original seven. And in contrast to the first group, these cows look emaciated. To Pharaoh's horror, they become carnivores and they eat the first cows. Well, the image shocks Pharaoh awake, but he soon slumbers again and has a second dream, just as ominous as the first. And in this dream, seven plump ears of grain come out of a single stalk, But then seven more ears rise up thin and gaunt as the cows of the first dream, and they swallow up the good ears. So vivid are the dreams that Pharaoh doesn't realize he's dreaming until he wakes in a cold sweat, seized by fear. He's confronted with reality that he cannot control, one that will bring the empire to its knees. So the one who was supposed to be a god is now surprisingly weak and fearful. Verse eight, so in the morning, his spirit was troubled and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. In response to his dreams, Pharaoh calls upon all of Egypt's brightest and best to solve the pressing problem, but no one in the land can interpret them for him. Now, the fact that the dream is singular indicates that Pharaoh saw the dreams as essentially one dream, while the plural them suggests that all the magicians interpreted them unsuccessfully as two different dreams. So Egypt is on the verge of a national disaster, and no one is able to break the code and avert the crisis. At this most propitious moment, the cupbearer's memory is jarred, and the forgotten Joseph, is finally mentioned to the king. Verse nine. The chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the the baker was hanged. Well, pressed against the wall by the prospect of a national crisis, The unappreciative cupbearer finally owns up to his sin of failing to mention Joseph to Pharaoh. He faithfully recounts his time with Joseph in prison and when he and the chief baker were invaded by dreams in the night. And his eyewitness testimony convinces Pharaoh that Joseph's resume seems like a perfect fit for the hour. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called to Joseph, And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. And I've heard it said that you, of you, that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Well, the fact that Pharaoh responds with immediate action and no words reveals both the depth of the need and the gravity of the situation. The king's servants waste no time making Joseph presentable. He's bathed and shaved according to Egyptian custom, including his head. And then he's given a new wardrobe. The Hebrew youth who was once stripped of his clothing and thrown into a pit by his brothers is now clothed with new garments to be presented before the king. In that world, the image of putting on new clothes represents Joseph's new social status. And similarly, the image is used by Paul in the New Testament as an apt metaphor for clothing ourselves in our new identity in Christ. The king explains his dilemma to Joseph, adding that he has heard about his ability to interpret dreams. But Joseph is quick to give glory to the one to whom glory is due, explaining that God alone is able to interpret dreams. (laughs) Now, this is not a statement of humility on Joseph's part, but it is a bold declaration that cuts across the dominant Egyptian worldview. In all his years, Joseph never doubted his divine gift, and now he shows no fear and challenging the world's greatest empire to submit to his God. His next statement, that God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, is ambiguous. The word favorable is shalom, which means peace or well-being. And so Joseph could be saying that God will answer Pharaoh favorably or he will answer concerning the well-being of Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's too desperate to challenge the monotheistic theology of this Hebrew youth, and he immediately tells him his dreams. Verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, "'Behold, in my dream I was standing "'on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, "'came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass.'" Seven other cows came up after them, "'poor and very ugly and thin, "'such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. "'And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. "'But when they had eaten them, "'no one would have known that they had eaten them, "'for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. "'And then I awoke.' I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in, on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. <clears throat> and I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now, in the narrative art of the Bible, variations in verbal repetition are z- Are highly significant. In addition to the original port of the dream, Pharaoh describes his feeling of horror upon seeing the emaciated cows, a sight so ugly, he says he'd never seen anything like it in all the land of Egypt. Now, this phrase will be a repeated refrain, ringing out seven times in this chapter to indicate the comprehensiveness of the plenty that is to come. Of the famine and of the measures that Joseph adopts. It is indeed a historic day in Egypt. Well, Pharaoh further elaborates on his revulsion, adding that after these emaciated cows had eaten the sleek and fat cows, they were just as ugly and grotesque. Without a doubt, Pharaoh's dreams have shaken him to the core. Mayor Sternberg comments on a more subtle difference, suggesting that when Pharaoh retells the dream, he unmakes the symmetry that the narrator has taken such care to make. Within each vision, Pharaoh blurs the contrast between the units, and within the pair of visions as a whole, he blurs the similarity. This makes Joseph's ability to accurately interpret the dreams even more astounding. Since Pharaoh has presented them not as as one dream with one interpretation, the magicians, two dreams with two interpretations. But to the inspired Joseph, they are two dreams with only one interpretation. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years are seven years. The dreams are one. So Joseph first solves the riddle that Pharaoh, indeed, had two distinct dreams, but they only have one interpretation. In both dreams, the number seven signifies seven years. In three different sets of dreams in the Joseph story, the interpretation of each pair is different, with no set patterns, So apart from divine inspiration, there's no possibility of interpretation. This robs Egypt of her pride, makes her schools of dream technicians illegitimate. So Joseph then proceeds to give Pharaoh the interpretation, verse 27. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years And the seven empty years blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. So both dreams speak of seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. And the famine will be so severe, it will be difficult to remember the good years when abundance was the norm. Pain will purge their memory of all that was good. A bit like how the pandemic has done with us. This explains Pharaoh's horror at the appearance of the gaunt cows after they had eaten the fat cows. They still looked emaciated, it was as if they had eaten nothing. So, so much for the interpretation, but why did Pharaoh receive the revelation in two dreams, not one? Joseph gives the answer in verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So the repetition was to impress upon Pharaoh that God had determined the matter and that it was irrevocable. There is nothing either Pharaoh or his administration can do to avoid the famine. Secondly, the repetition was to impress upon him the immediacy of the situation. So if Pharaoh was going to act, he must do so immediately. Pharaoh makes no response. He is stunned into silence. And at this point, which is now the turning point of the text, Joseph makes a bold move. He takes the initiative, demonstrating his courage and faith. He gives Pharaoh a gift that goes beyond the dream, the gift of practical wisdom that outlines a step-by-step plan to preserve the nation through the crisis. In effect, Joseph is putting his resume on the table, having his name blank for Pharaoh to fill it in. And in offering unsolicited advice, Joseph runs the risk of appearing presumptuous and incurring the wrath of Pharaoh. But the consequences of doing nothing would have been more severe. Verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land so that the land may not perish through the famine. <clears throat> Joseph's a prophet. But I notice that Joseph doesn't just pronounce judgment on a pagan empire and simply walk away. No, he sees a very powerful link between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. <clears throat> And no prophet ever gave judgment oracles without following with salvation oracles. And though imprisoned in Egypt for years, Joseph still cares deeply for the welfare of the society, and therefore he offers a solution for life. He's pro-life. Though God has determined events, that does not mean the empire is doomed to death. As Walter Brueggemann points out, the intervention of God does not end royal responsibility, but sets it in a context where a new course of action is required. God's purpose is not the end of human planning, but the ground for human planning, That God's plan is above human plans does not mean there should be no human planning. It means it must be responsive and faithful to God's plan. Well, Joseph's plan is ingenious. Like a good statesman, he reminds Pharaoh that severe crisis calls for severe measures. And he proposes to put the whole nation under a strict food rationing program, storing 20% of the food supply in each of the good years. This suggests that the good years will yield such abundance that approximately one and a half years' supply from the good years will be enough to feed the nation and the known world through seven years of famine. Joseph then proposes that the program be administered in sort of a quasi-military fashion, dividing the land into regions with overseers over each region, all reporting to one supreme leader. The overseers are charged not only with the task of collecting and distributing the grain, but also protecting it during times of famine. The goal, Joseph concludes, is that the land may not perish during the famine. And it's interesting to me in, in the fact of the COVID crisis that the nations that have done the best have had singular leadership for the singular plan and strict adherence and obedience to the plan. I think our nation, we're so independent. Everybody wants to do their own thing. Every state does a different thing. The laws are changing all the time and we see the results. But difficult times need strict measures and unified measures. So Joseph concludes, he does not want this land to perish. So he who was once a victim of an unjust royal power now offers his services for the public good. Joseph is a model for those who are born to rule. And I pray that God may make us instruments for life in this time of crisis. So often today I find Christians view their role as prophets merely to condemn the immoral practices of an empire. So few are like Joseph who care enough to offer their services for life within the very institutions of in which they condemn. Well, when Jesus proclaimed God's judgment and destruction on Jerusalem, he wept over the city. And in that very same text, he told them there was a way of escape. Flee the city when you see the sign. Jesus wanted no one to perish. My friend Sanjay McWan works at the International Justice Mission in Mumbai. I think you all know the terrible COVID crisis in India. It's horrific. And not only does he rescue sex victims, he's been working now to organize people to put in oxygen plants in these hospitals and raising money to do that in his spare time for this crisis. That's the kind of people God wants us to be. Well, Pharaoh's response to Joseph is as surprising as his initial imprisonment. Verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? He recognizes God's spirit. Can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. I think Pharaoh's to be commended. He recognizes a foreigner who has more gifts than his own people and exalts him to where he can function. That's a wonderful quality. To always look at the other out of the box, and to see that they have something to offer and maybe salvation. On the flip side, it's very difficult to imagine what pent-up emotions Pharaoh's words released on Joseph that day. How amazing that the human channel to open prison doors and fulfill Joseph's dreams wasn't just the chief cupbearer, it was Joseph himself. So impressed is Pharaoh with Joseph's performance, he lauds him as one who stands far above anyone in his court. Then he acknowledges the God who is behind Joseph's gifts of divine inspiration. And then equally he lauds him for his wisdom, that's the moral skill of living life, wisdom and understanding and discernment. He's so appreciative of the gifts that Joseph has brought to bear in the present national crisis, he elevates him to second in command. And without consultation. (laughs) It's an amazing moment in salvation history where the world pauses to applaud God's servants as praiseworthy according to its own standards. People like Mother Teresa Well, the stunned Joseph cannot speak. Just as Pharaoh was unable to speak following the interpretation of his dreams, so Pharaoh will further elaborate, which we will examine next week. So this story did much to strengthen Israel's faith in a God who's faithful to his promises, works all things according to his inscrutable will, But in a more subtle fashion, it gives us insight into the divine mystery of what happens to the human soul during dark days of waiting. Again, as Peter writes, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Well, we might well ask, what is the proper time? Is it merely the orchestration of world events? Or is God doing something within us? And I think there's evidence in this text that both are true. God was not only having Joseph wait until he organized the stage of international politics, he was also accomplishing a very important work inside Joseph. Now, we have seen Joseph engaged in three sets of dreams over a period of some 13 years. In each case, he exercises his divinely inspired gift with 100% accuracy so that he never loses confidence in God's dreams to shape history. Joseph's gifts don't change, but through his imprisonments and casting his anxiety on God, there's a marked change in the wisdom that accompanies the gift. So when he first broadcasts his dreams to his brothers as a youth of 17, he is naive and unaware, blithely assuming everybody will be fascinated by the details of his dreams. His immaturity infuriates his brothers and lands him in a pit. The second time he employs his gift occurs after he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. He was serving an unjust 10-year prison sentence. There we observe Joseph with a degree of wisdom serving his prisoners with care and sensitivity. And after he accurately interprets their dreams, he humbly appeals to the chief cupbearer for a reciprocal kindness to advocate for his release when he is delivered. His role as a prophet no longer distances him from people. Humiliation has made him gracious mutually dependent toward others. Now the third time Joseph interprets dreams, he has the courage to place his resume on the table as a solution to a national crisis. Pharaoh is awestruck, and he gives equal praise for the divine gift of interpretation and his extraordinary wisdom. So it seems that the proper time for Joseph's exaltation was when the wisdom within his heart had equal footing with the divine gift. I think the same is true of Moses, who was set aside for 40 years, David, 13 years wandering in caves learning to pray. Well, the next scenes, no dreams are reported. But Joseph functions with uncanny wisdom as he designs tests to prove the hearts of his brothers. And on that stage of wisdom, Joseph will find his dreams fulfilled. Now, striking to me that in Isaiah's description of the coming Messiah, what is really put at the forefront is not a charismatic gift. It's Jesus's wisdom and the loving character that flows out of that wisdom. Isaiah writes, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from its roots will bear fruit. After the Assyrian invasion, it was like all the trees in Israel were cut to stumps. And from one stump would come a shoot, but it's like it's an offshoot. It doesn't look like it has any potential. And yet, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. It's true when Jesus spoke, people said no one spoke like him or taught like him, but how he loved, how he cared for people, how he connected with the outsiders and brought them inside. What wisdom he had, what discernment. It's even pierced through Pharisaic armor to bring their to knees in repentance. That promise shoot from the stump of Jesse would be characterized by the very breath of God around him, spirit to make him holy and beautiful. Everything about his leadership testified to the supernatural endowment of the Holy Spirit. Now perhaps this suggests what God was doing it, or does in us when we seem to be set aside from our gifts. It's not always true, but I just offer it in Joseph's case. Perhaps like Joseph, he's refining our character with the wisdom that gives us the ability to bring life to all our relationships. He is transforming our character to match the divine gift. You know, it's striking in the New Testament, divine gifts alone never commend someone for leadership in the church. Even Paul who had the most amazing prophetic experiences, caught up in the third heaven, he explains that those experiences did not commend him as a leader. Instead, he says, he commends himself to others through the suffering he endured as a result. When we look at the qualifications for elders and deacons, character matters supremely more than anything else character shaped to the crucible of humiliation. The only reference to spiritual gifts is that an elder be apt or able to teach a skill that can be honed from a variety of different spiritual gifts. As Paul writes, all divine gifts will someday cease, but love, love never fails, and love abides forever. This is what God is supremely seeking. Amen. Thank you, Katie and James and team. So next week, I look forward to seeing all of you here and sign up in the pews and receive now this benediction. May the God who shakes heaven and earth, whom death could not contain, who lives to disturb and heal us, bless you with power to go forth and proclaim the gospel. The grace of the Lord be with you all, now and always. Amen.